You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to episode 16 of The Book of Nature, a podcast hosted by three Christians who work in the sciences and enjoy talking about all things sciency. With me today is Todd Pedler, Associate Professor of Physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Uh, Todd, what's new with you? Uh, what's new with me? I've got a week out from a trip to Japan with, uh, with three eager undergrads, uh, which I'm not entirely sure I'm prepared to take. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the first time I've taken them to our lab uh, in Japan, and uh, it, it's just—it's going to be a different experience, I am sure. No doubt. Yeah. Yep. But a good one. Okay. Also joining us is Dan Dawson, assistant professor of the atmospheric sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Dan, how's by you? Uh, pretty good. I'm recovering from our, our first, uh, storm chasing class trip, uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we happened to pick the right week. We went roaming the plains, got so many tornadoes. It wasn't even funny. Um, Excellent. It, yeah, it was a pretty good trip. Um, really exhausting. I'm trying to get back into the swing of things with, um, the research I want to do this summer, writing a proposal, etc. But, Weather's nice outside, and uh, things are going well. Oh, good. All right, and I uh, am an amalgamation of disparate self-concepts that collectively refers to itself as Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the pocket dimension of Karenport, Saskatchewan. Uh, and I'm doing pretty good these days. If you don't All say right. it, so, so yourself. Have, oh, yeah. have the leaves come out on the trees there yet? <laughs> Uh, yes, the, <laughs> about the leaves turn, are out. They're about to turn red, I guess. <laughs> uh, the leaves are out. The garden has been planted. The robins are coming by and stealing all our worms. Oh, man. Uh, and summer is in full swing. It's good. All right, oh, so uh, let's start things off with listener feedback. Listener feedback would be nice. <laughs> Um, we uh, haven't had anything in our email account for quite some time. Um, Facebook, not a lot of activity, though I'm told we're up to 40 likes, which is more than 39. Keep them coming. So That's right. Keep them coming. So remember, we have lots of episodes are, coming up. That's right. Uh, remember that our email address is bookofnaturepodcast, all one word, bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, while we're talking about feedback and projects that we're working on and things like that, uh, Todd, I believe uh, you have uh, an announcement that uh, you dropped about uh, podcasting and you. Oh, well, I mean, and us, but my I guess it's my idea, um, uh, which I'm shamelessly stealing from Danny Anderson from Sectarian Review. 
um, which is to, um, in between our episodes, I thought it would be a good idea to, uh, when things come up in science news or, you know, uh, or otherwise when something pops into our heads that we think might be interesting to, uh, to, to talk about a little bit, um, <laughs> I thought we might be well-placed to uh, hold an occasional moment of science. Um, so I, 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 at least that's my tentative title for these is, is a moment of science. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, when we'll start doing this, I'm not sure. Um, I've got some uh, ideas that I might uh, throw out there for little reflections here and there, and I'd invite either of the two of you to do the same thing. And uh, this way we can sort of... Uh, Keep our uh, keep our recording going, especially if we have long periods of drought, as we are wont to have. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. Sounds Should be fun. Good to me. Sounds like fun. I'll uh, see if I can think up some things to say. Will there be a moment of silence before each moment of science? I'm afraid. That that just breaks the pun. So why? Ah, <laughs> why I'm sorry. Why would you? Why would I'm I do that? <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, uh, no. I couldn't. I I couldn't resist, despite my my best intentions. Oh, of course. Right. Well, for our topic today, listeners, um, today we complete our trilogy of narcissism. Uh, in previous <laughs> episodes, uh, we focused uh, on Dan and his work with storms. And then uh, we put the spotlight on me and terror management theory. Now it's all about Todd. Oh, boy. Uh, So um, if you've been listening to the previous two episodes, uh, we've been taking a bit more of an informal, uh, free-flowing approach and uh, chatting with each other about our respective uh, specializations, talking a bit about our backgrounds, uh, what got us into this area, and uh, what we're up to these days. Uh, so, uh, Todd, let's start with background. Um, of course, being a psychologist, I'm going to go there. <laughs> Tell me about your childhood. <laughs> what got you started down the dark and sinister path of science? Uh, well, uh, I suppose it would be uh, appropriate for me to uh, blame shift when I'm being spoken to by a... a <laughs> psychologist um naturally and uh so it's 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 probably my dad's fault um i suppose um i i grew up as the the first of of two uh in the house of a uh some some people would call him a mad scientist although he wasn't uh, wasn't often mad uh <laughs> he uh he he was a chemist by training. Uh, uh, chemistry was his uh, undergraduate and graduate majors. Um, he started teaching uh, chemistry and physics at a, a tiny school in in Washington State, uh, rural Washington, a uh, town of about 600 uh, or so. Uh, he started teaching in 1967. Uh, I came into being in 69. Um, not the summer of '69, uh, but uh, but December, um, and so he, you know, he started teaching. He actually started teaching right out of undergrad. So uh, you know, he was 23 when he started, 
Um, so if you can imagine, <laughs> this is what he tells me anyway. Uh, his first, uh, among his first class of students, he had students who were only three years younger than he was. Um, uh, there were some 20-year-old seniors uh, hanging about the farm still. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can remember my first classes here at Luther uh, being... Uh, what was I when I started? Goodness, I think I started at 33. So, um, uh, you know, I, I still felt like the seniors were very close in age to me. So I can't imagine teaching people only three years younger than I. Um, anyway, so he, you know, he he uh, started in 67, started teaching, um, taught everything. I mean, this is a rural uh, school uh 35 students per class or thereabouts. Um, so he taught physics and chemistry and geology and, uh, you know, and taught the, the junior high versions of these as well because it was a consolidated school. Um, so uh, had, you know, had, would have everybody twice. Um, that was the, the, the town I grew up in was, was, you know, of this size, grew up at least until uh, through my ninth grade year when we moved to a substantially larger town. Um, but I, so I grew up in the home of a science teacher. My mom was a, a, a librarian in the um, elementary schools, and so we were very much a school family. Um, but because of my dad's areas of interest, which were wide-ranging in the physical sciences, um, and because I, he's just a science nerd, um, we did a whole lot, a lot of sciencey things growing up. I, I built and 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 flew rockets uh, frequently. We would go. We would combine camping trips with rock collecting uh, journeys. So we would go out in the in, into the wilds of eastern Oregon and co you know collect all sorts of lava varieties and things that go along with lava. Um, Presumably cooled lava. Uh, yes. Not hot lava, yes. Yeah. No, no, it had been cooling for uh, several thousand years uh, at this at this point. Yeah, just got to be careful with your lava. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, never did have a lava lamp, by the way, but that's that's a, that, that's uh, irrelevant. Um, but, I, you know, I, I never knew anything different than thinking about the natural world and thinking about um, what made things tick. Um, you know, it was fun. It was fun to go traipsing up these uh, river uh, or, you know, river headwaters up, up into little creeks to go find the places where we could, we could grab garnets, which are, you know, this, this uh, beautiful purpley red uh, stone uh, that, that forms, tends to form in volcanic regions. Um, you know, I can remember finding one that was baseball sized, uh, you know, which, you know, it, well, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't one you could polish into a beautiful uh, gemstone or, 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 or I'd not be doing what I'm doing, I suppose, um, because I think it would be worth something. Um, but yeah, rock, rock collecting was a big thing growing up when we would camp and we would camp for endless endless uh endless days and weeks and and what have you um and so i i just grew up thinking science i grew up uh, thinking about the stars we would often camp out you know under uh, the open sky and uh, you know I, eastern washington eastern oregon um and you know interior british columbia there's nobody that lives there 
mean, you know, so you've got extremely dark skies. So the night sky was something that I came to know very early too, um, just because of dad, you know. Um, so that's the sort of, you know, that's the pebble that started the, uh, you know, the rock slide uh, or what have you. Um, it, it was a little a little odd for me, you know, growing up the son of a teacher, uh, being in dad's class more than once, um, trying not to call him dad in class, although I did anyway. Uh, it was always a joke. Called him Mr. Dad one time. That got people going. Um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, I, I think I never, I don't know that I ever envisioned myself necessarily as a specific kind of scientist until I was, um, I don't know, post junior high, getting into high school. Uh, the space shuttle was, you know, frequently flying at this time, you know, so I'm thinking aerospace, uh, growing up in the backyard of, of Boeing um, in Everett, Washington, just across the water from our the island I grew up on, um, you know, I, I, I think that is what sort of got me thinking about a particular subfield. I was going to be an aeronautical engineer or aerospace engineer. Um, and uh, that lasted until about no, two thirds of the way through my freshman semester at uh, a liberal arts college in Washington State, Whitman College, um, when I guess I just caught the bug um, that you know f- my my freshman physics professor was um, <laughs> very very funny, very funny man, uh, old school MIT, very dry sense of humor, kind of looked like Fred McMurray and all my sons. Or my three sons, um, uh, but a wonderful teacher. I mean, just just somebody who could really inspire, and I think he did. And 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 um, I, I you know fell back on what I probably well I'm quite sure I was aiming for anyway all along. Uh, I just I I loved the the raw science was was so much more interesting to me than the uh, real applied nature that that engineering would bring. So changed my mind, changed my, you know, path, took all the physics and math I could. Um, almost. I didn't double major in math. Um, uh, but I <clears throat> but it, I you know I, I I I just I immersed myself be and because at that point in time I was absolutely certain that I wanted to come back to the kind of institution that I that I had as an undergrad. Um, so yeah, I mean that's, I guess that's more than just what got it started, but that's where I you know that gets me to the point where I'm thinking physics, in specific. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. Um, you know, afterward, I mean, I guess I, I, I should continue a little bit. Um, so I apply to graduate school. I'm, I don't have a direction yet. Uh, or if I do, it's nowhere near what I'm doing now. Um, I did a, a thesis project uh, as, a, as a, a senior on high temperature superconductors which were 
a big deal at the time. Uh, there had just been some breakthroughs a few years earlier. Um, uh, what a superconductor is um, for the listener uh, is is a substance that conducts electricity with very very little electrical resistance. So I mean everything, all the circuits that we have in our in our uh, electric you know electronic equipment, everything that we pass electricity through um, for the purpose of, you know, for whatever purpose, uh, everything has, has uh, electrical resistance. So it heats up, you know, the, the electrons that are flowing through bang into the material that uh, they're flowing through and that impedes their progress. Um, and that impedance is lessened severely for, for things that are in what we would call a, a, a regime of superconductivity. Normally, this requires you to cool things down to very, very, very low temperatures. Um, basically, all metals become superconducting at, at, at near absolute zero. Um, but it was discovered in 87 or 88 that there are some ceramic materials that actually go superconducting at liquid nitrogen temperatures. Um, and so I, you know, I thought this was a really cool thing. I did a senior project on it. Um, and I went off to grad school thinking I was going to go join a group that did similar work. And there was one at Northwestern University where I went. Um, and well, I was interrupted. I was interrupted because my eventual advisor, who was a nuclear and particle physicist, uh, called me up the summer before I went off to grad school and said, do you want to go to Los Alamos? And what science geek is going to say no? Yeah, when someone asks you if you want to go to Los Alamos, you say yes. <laughs> well, well, not everybody would, I suppose. Uh, but, right. <laughs> but if you have the, oppor you know, the opportunity yeah. to go before grad school, I mean, there's, you know, I'm... I'm 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 you know stunned that I've got this phone call that somebody wants to uh, you know sight unseen I mean I guess transcript scene but otherwise you know an application scene but sight unseen is going to invite me to go work at Los Alamos on a you know an experiment there with you know a couple of grad students a couple of postdocs and him like good night of course I'm going to go so I did and that was that I mean that you know that 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 hooked me. Um, I'm still not sure that I, you know, if that had not happened, I don't know where I, you know, I'm, I don't know what I would have done. Uh, I guess I would have just gone off and 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 done my, um, you know, done done the original plan. Um, although in retrospect, I can't imagine having <laughs> lasted with the the group that I would have ended up joining had I done that. Um, Partly because I would have wanted to graduate in a reasonable amount of time, and that group was notoriously slow. So, you know, 10 years a grad student, uh, it's like 12 years a slave, I guess. Um, yeah, so that, my, that, that got me down the particle physics road, and... Uh, so there's some irony there, the, uh, the people working on superconductors uh, were notoriously not speedy. Indeed, much much resistance. There was much resistance to graduating their students. Yeah, yeah it was. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was a good group. It was good, good, good people. You know, I. Uh, but I, 
It, it was. I spent long enough on mine. <laughs> I mean, I started. I started grad school in '91, um, and uh, you know, fall of '91, and I finished in the spring of '99, um, which was you know, there's, there's, for for particle physics, you can be fast depending on if you time yourself right. You know, if you get in at just the right time. Um, I've known people that have gotten out in five years. Um, and I think I would have been on track for about six and a half, but, but, uh, Fermilab where I did my, my PhD research, uh, ended up extending the run, um, prior to our experiment, uh, partly because they were looking for the top quark, which we can talk about, I guess. Um, and decided they wanted to take another 18 months of data, which put off all experiments like mine, which required them not to be looking for the top quark. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that gave me, you know, a, a, a little a little extra time. Um, I was hoping to be out in, a, you know, in, in about six or seven years, but these things happen, as they say. Well, um once you got that taken care of, um, what did you end up uh, doing your uh, doctoral work on? Well, so this um, this probably requires diagrams that maybe I suppose I should supply. <laughs> All right, listeners, we're going to use the power of our imagination. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Imagination. Um, yeah. So um, let me begin, I guess, begin the story. Um, with um, with the simple statement that uh, as follows: If if you're going to study elementary particle physics, so first of all, if you're going to study elementary particles, what are elementary particles? Elementary particles are those things which make up, uh, ultimately, which make up you and me and everything else. Um, the proton, which uh, people typically know or uh, have heard of. Um, proton is a charged particle. Uh, there's a neutral particle which is often associated with it called the neutron. And protons and neutrons together make up uh, nuclei, which are the hard core of, a, of, of atoms. So atoms consist of a nucleus and electrons. Um, electrons uh, are thought of by many people, and it's not entirely correct, but it's okay to think about it this way, as orbiting the nucleus. Um, there are reasons we don't talk about it that way um, that we don't necessarily need to get into here, but the protons and neutrons are the heavy particles that, that uh, make up nuclei. So um, nuclei, uh, different nuclei, are... Um, uh, are the things which make up different types of chemical species, like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, have different nuclei, um, have different numbers of protons and neutrons uh, in the nucleus. Well, the neutrons and protons are not fundamental. Uh, electrons are thought to be point-like particles. Uh, protons and neutrons, though, are not, though they were for, uh, well, from, from the time when they were first discovered uh, through 30 or 40 years into the 1950s or 60s, uh, they were thought to be fundamental particles just like the electron uh, is thought to be. 
but a series of experiments in the 60s discovered that, in fact, they were not fundamental. They were composed of still smaller things. Uh, these things are called quarks. Um, they are uh, three in number in, in, in composing the proton. The proton is made up of two quarks called up quarks and a quark called a down. Um, you'll, you'll begin to realize that physicists really are geeky people uh, in, in calling uh, the quarks by names such as up and down uh, or other quarks which are called strange and charm and... Um, then we got boring, and, and the things that have stuck are names like top and bottom for the very heavy quarks. Um, although some still refer to them by earlier names, which were truth and beauty, um, which I so guess... So much better name, I think opinion. so. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, it's, 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 got the, it's got a better aesthetic for sure. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, you, you say that... <coughs> Um, we're all made up of all of those, but I'm pretty sure that uh, my structure is entirely lacking in charm quarks. Well, we're we're actually only made up of ups and lots downs. of strange quarks, though. I'm pretty sure I'm mostly strange well, quarks. I, I I suspect there may be some strange pollution. Yes, in in well, in any of us who do what we do, there's bound to be some some uh, some strange quarks. But uh, protons and neutrons are just up and down. Uh, those are the lightest of the quarks. Um, the other kinds of quarks appear in general only in artificially created uh, objects in the laboratory. Things that are like the proton, things that are like the neutron, um, but have been um, created through experimentation. So we can make these uh, more exotic forms of uh, of matter that include these other quarks. Um, so uh, they, the class of objects which are made of three quarks are called baryons. And baryons, uh, the name just comes from the Greek word baryos for heavy. Um, so baryons are protons and neutrons and then others that contain other types of quarks. Um, are the three quark objects, but they're also two quark objects. They're not two quarks, though. They're a quark and an anti-quark. An anti-particle of any particle is is something which is essentially identical, but has opposite properties like electric charge. So if you have a particle that has positive charge, its anti-particle will have negative charge. Um, and there are other properties uh, that I could mention as well, but, but electrical charge people are probably most familiar with, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, so antiquarks and quarks can bind together in pairs, where you have a quark and an antiquark. That's a system called a meson. Meson comes like baryon comes from the Greek, um, except meson is middle weight, a middle weighted thing. Um, and it's the study of mesons that has basically encapsulated all of my my research from 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 day one well from from day one from from the time that I started as a graduate student um, what one can do with mesons is is quite remarkable um, and in order to describe this I think I want to go back to a more familiar system so let's go back to the hydrogen atom What's the hydrogen atom? It's a proton 
orbited by an electron. It's the simplest electromagnetically bound system you can think of. Two particles that exchange, uh, that interact by means of a force, the electromagnetic force that we all know from from magnets or from being shocked at the doorknob on a cold winter day. Um, Electromagnetism can be studied by studying the hydrogen atom, uh, by studying the allowed, and this is a, a very important property of quantum mechanics, the allowed places or energies that a, an electron can, uh, can have relative to the proton. Uh, there, there are only certain allowed energies, certain quantized energies. Again, quantum just means a little bit of something. So there are a little, uh, very closely separated allowed energies that the electron can have relative to the proton in a bound system that we call hydrogen. And you can study this. You can make the, you can make the hydrogen atom uh, jump from one energy level to another by, by giving it energy, by shooting it with a laser, let's say, that has just the right um, energy that is a, that represents a step between these energy levels. You can um, you can tune uh, you can tune a, a a device to be able to cause the electron to hop back and forth between between these energy levels. Incidentally, one of the ways in which people I mean people haven't necessarily heard of this fact about hydrogen atoms, but they have seen neon lights, right? You've seen. Uh, or you've seen the characteristic color of, uh, of certain street lamps that are sodium vapor lamps. Um, those have their characteristic color. hate that color, by the way. It's a terrible Never color. Liked. Well, and astronomers hate it, too, by the way. But, but oh, yes. It, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a horrible It's a horrible. I got color. a filter specifically to filter out those wavelengths for my telescope. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you have oh, to. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, those characteristic colors come about because the electrons in those atoms um, ha, are most prevalently hop between two of their allowed energy levels and emit light that is of a particular wavelength that corresponds to that energy difference. So the, the fact of these allowed quantum levels of electrons in atoms um, is something that we know. Um, neon has a particular color for that reason. Um, you can you can excite in a similar uh, in a similar electrical discharge tube. You can excite hydrogen and see particular wavelengths. You can excite mercury uh, and see particular different wavelengths. So different gases have different colors that are characteristic, and the characteristic color is dictated by the the particular energy levels that are allowed for electrons in those atoms. So just to connect people with things that, that, um, that will help me make my next point, I guess. By studying those energy levels in hydrogen and other atoms, you can learn an awful lot about the force that, that binds the electron to those nuclei. Um, and that force is the electromagnetic force. So um, since the 1920s, when the the uh, you know first theories of of the quantum nature of the atom were uh, obtained by people like Niels Bohr and Schrodinger and uh, and others like them, um, the electromagnetic force has been has been studied in atomic physics. Um, 
uh, where people set up experiments to test and uh, you know, test models of the interaction between the electron and the proton uh, protons in the nucleus. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in many ways, the electromagnetic force is on pretty good footing, um, at least in, 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 in terms of the precision of results that are obtained. But there are other forces in nature, and one of the other forces in nature is, is what we call the strong nuclear interaction. The strong nuclear interaction is the thing that binds mesons together, and it binds protons together, too, for that matter. Um, but what I study is the energy levels, by analogy, you can imagine, um, the energy levels that are allowed for quarks in a known meson system. So um, one can choose any number of, of meson systems to, to study. And again, we're talking about forming a meson and looking at the allowed energy levels, the allowed um, relationships between the two quarks in the bound state. And if we can map out those energy levels in a way similar to the way that we have historically studied hydrogen, then we can get a handle, a, a precise handle, on the parameters that govern this other force, the strong nuclear interaction. So that's, the, that's basically my, my field of study, is, is, is experiments that produce mesons, either containing charm quarks or bottom quarks. I've done both. Um, which, by studying the energy levels, by discovering new ones... Um, we can get a handle on the strong nuclear interaction and, and thereby understand better uh, what it is that holds protons together. I mean, I don't know if people, you know, if people, my students always get this when I, when I, when I give this picture to them. The, and, and that is the, the, the inference of the existence of the strong nuclear force. It's pretty easy to understand. Um, and both of you guys, I mean, you, you, you've, you've had physics at some point in your deep, dark past, uh, I think. <laughs> I, know, I know you have, Dan. I, I, I only presume that because Charles is educated, he must have, too. Um, have uh, you? I did. As an undergraduate, I had intro physics. And the, Ex most the only reason that I passed it was that uh, uh, every, every time after class, I would go up to the professor, and I would not let the professor go until he had explained all the stuff that I didn't understand. Which sometimes took a while. <laughs> oh my goodness! This so you wrestled with him until he blessed yes. you. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> okay. and frequently involving the words, but I don't get it. <laughs> well, that's okay. That 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 is the learning process, and yes. uh, I've been there myself. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I encourage my students to do that. I've got uh, no problem with uh, students coming up to me after class and, and saying, "Okay, what did you mean by that? How did that work?" Oh, yeah. exactly. I I hope to get that. It means that 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 they're they're actually engaged and right. they care about absolutely. learning, uh, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So here's the picture that I think people get. So you know, electromagnetism again. We've all experienced it. You've uh, you know mistakenly uh, in plugging something in, stuck your finger too close to the uh, uh, to the socket and got zapped, or um, or maybe you did it on purpose, or maybe you licked a nine volt battery. So you know, I have done that. You yeah. You you I also know used to 
but uh, stick a metal um, like a pin in like a like like a PIN, like a sewing needle pin or whatever, sure. into uh, my electric train tracks when I was a kid to make sparks. <laughs> uh, Dad caught me doing that once, and boy, did I get yelled at. <laughs> anyway, continue. Sorry. Well, be careful what you do near um, near uh, you know electric fences. Uh, I, I will say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yes. So. Um, so we understand electromagnetism. And we understand if we understand that we and we know that protons are electrically charged, they're positively electrically charged. Um, what happens when you take two positively charged objects and bring them very close together? Ooh, ooh! I know, I know, I know this one. They repel each other. What do you know? They repel each other, and therefore, uh, what what do you suppose happens? Let's take a very big nucleus a big big nucleus like the nucleus of gold that has 79 protons in it and suppose you take those 79 positively charged protons and you smush them into a volume uh that is of order one one hundredth uh of well let's see is it even that big no it's not even that big uh, something something that is <laughs> much smaller, much, much smaller than a human hair, much uh, thousands of times smaller than a human hair. You cram them all together in this little space. What are they going to do? They're not going to want to stay together, are they? They're going to be trick like, question. Well, trick question. there's no trick there. <laughs> there's no trick there because this is the key to inference, right? Right. You understand that if if electromagnetism is all that there is, these protons will not readily stick together. But right. we know that things like I mean, we don't have to go to the extreme of of gold. We can go to helium, one of the mm-hmm. most tightly bound little nuggets that doesn't break up readily is the is the helium nucleus um or we can go to iron which is the most deeply bound but 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 helium is pretty you know the 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 alpha particle which is the helium nucleus um is well is well known to be really 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 stable they happily sit there yet they are two mm-hmm. protons that are 10 to the minus 15 meters apart so we know there must be something else there has got to be something else causing these things to bind See, together. See, I knew it was a trick. <laughs> I'm just messing. You, Go ahead. All the humanists <laughs> out there are thinking, oh, my goodness, these scientists. Yes. No, no, no. no. It's not full of tricks. It's full of beauty. The, yes. the, the, the inference that there must be some stronger interaction, hence the strong force, um, comes about simply from reasoning about what the nucleus must be like given the fact that we know that neutrons are neutral, and so they're not providing anything except a little bit of buffer, um, and you've got all these positively charged protons in there. So the, the inference of a stronger interaction did not take too, too long uh, for us to understand, uh, to at least to understand that it needed to be there. Now, studying it, on, on, on the other hand, took, took a long time. Uh, but we were talking about strong interactions that held nuclei together a very, very long time before we re- really had any understanding of what's going on. I read mm-hmm. a, uh, I read a Jack and, Chick track mm-hmm. once that told me that Jesus holds them together. Ah, uh, yes, 
yes, yes, yes. Going back to uh, uh, what is that? That must be in Colossians, I yes. think. Um, yeah, I remember yes. that Jack trick, yes. chick track, Jack chick that, track. That, Say that, that five that times trick, fast. That trick track. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's our eighties okay, flashback well, maybe this is for just, today, folks. Maybe this is just the way he does it. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, once we understood that there had to be something there, of course, then scientists like Sir Edmund Hillary say, I must climb it, right? I must go find out. Um, and so, uh, you know, right. a, a, a good, uh, let's see, how many years ago? Must be, I mean, it was, it was not too long after the discovery of charm quarks uh, in 1974, that we started thinking about doing experiments to specifically probe the charm or what's called the charmonium system. So charmonium is just the meson made of charm quarks and antiquarks. Um, and pretty soon uh, we had some basic ideas, basic measurements, which, which fleshed out some of the spectrum of those states. And uh, the discovery of bottomonium came just three years after charmonium in 1977. And uh, the two of those together are sometimes called the hydrogen atom of the strong interaction because the spectrum of states looks very similar. Um, quantum mechanically, we can understand a whole lot about uh, about all well about basic quantum mechanics um, from the way that the states both of the hydrogen atom and uh, something called positronium, which is the name that then gave rise ultimately to charmonium. Positronium is just an electron and a positron, the anti. I thought it was the stuff that uh, Data's brain operated on. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it is. It also had something to do with Dan Brown, but I don't, yeah. you know, <laughs> I don't endorse that that crap. So, uh, <laughs> so I try to avoid that. But Data, I can appreciate. Yes, positronic yeah. brain. Yes, which uh, which of course was stolen from Isaac Asimov. But yes, yes, we yeah. don't. <laughs> Well, how do you this not This is true, steal but at least it was a good adaptation. Right. Agreed. Agreed it was. A yes. good adaptation. Data's one of my favorite characters. Of, Mine too. Uh, yeah. Mine too. Yeah. Maybe I'm too, too much okay. like him. Okay, here's a question. Um, um, so go ahead. If there's a bottomonium, is there a toponium? There is there's not. not a toponium. Okay. No. I, although that's a good inference, there should be. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact is that the top quark... Um, decays so quickly uh it, it is it is very heavy the top quark so let me just run down the masses of these things so up and down are basically mass i mean they're they're not massless but they're very very light they're um so the units that are important here uh, i'll just use them I'll, I'll just i'll just uh no i won't i will not use them i'll use the unit of the proton mass so uh, the up and down quarks that make up the proton uh, have a mass of, let's see, about a half of a percent of the mass of the proton, or thereabouts. Um, the mass of the strange quark is about 15% of the mass of the, uh, of the proton. The mass of the charm quark is about one and a half times. The mass of the bottom quarks about four and a half times, and the mass of the top quarks about 175 times the mass of the proton, in in very rough terms. So that means it's a it's about the mass of a gold nucleus actually. 
Um, it is it's very exotic, uh, and and the most exotic thing about it, I guess, is that it decays so quickly that it would not be possible for light to travel for a signal. So all signals are bound by the, 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 the speed of light. No signal, no information can pass faster than the speed of light. The top quark decays, once it is produced, it decays so quickly that it would not be possible for light to pass between it and anything, um, you know, a uh, strong interaction distance away, which, uh, you know, again, is about 10 to the minus 15 meters. It couldn't pass that. It decays long before light could even get to another quark, another top quark. Um, as such, then, top quarks never actually form any bound system. They, they, they can't because they effectively, and this is anthropomorphizing, I know, they can't talk to anybody else. So they decay, and what's left then most of the time is a bottom quark. Almost you know, 99.9% of the time a top quark decays to a bottom quark. And so what you get is a bottom meson that's produced if you ever produce a top quark. So, no. Good thought, but uh, it was, and it was, it was hoped that, it was hoped that toponium would exist. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons why we study heavy quarks bound together is that they don't move really fast. Um, <laughs> this doesn't... <laughs> I can see that this might cause some confusion. I don't care that they don't. They, they actually move really fast. I mean, compared to a baseball pitch, yeah, they move really fast. But um, but they're not. They don't move at speeds close to the speed of light. If we produce up and down quarks, or if we actually are just looking at the up and down quarks within a proton, those things are whipping around really fast. Inside charmonium or inside bottomonium, the quarks are basically not what we would call relativistic. They're not moving at any substantial fraction of the speed of light. And so we don't have a lot of complications that would otherwise arise. So we can, we can study these systems with precision because we don't have complications that arise from relativistic effects. Well, the top quark being, before it was discovered, it was, it was known, it was, well, it was known, it was presumed to be there and presumed to be very heavy. And we thought, hey, toponium would be great because it would be the most non-relativistic, the least complicated system we could form. Unfortunately, it turns out that it's so heavy and that it decays so quickly that it doesn't produce a toponium. So we're, the best we can do is bottomonium, which is what I do. All right, so that's, uh, that's what you did uh, your doctorate on? Oh, that's what I did. Oh, no, no, my doctorate was on it. I'm sorry. I kind of <laughs> just launched into the future. Um, my, 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 I, I did charmonium. I studied charmonium at Fermilab okay. for my, for my PhD. Um, and, uh, you know, in the process made some, you know, some measurements of some, some of the lesser known states of that system. Um, and moved on from there to Cornell University um, which, uh, so Fermilab famously has an accelerator complex. Um, and, uh, but Cornell does too. Cornell has one, um, beneath the soccer fields in, uh, uh, in Eastern part of the, of the campus at Cornell. Um, 
visiting soccer teams don't know, I think, that there's an accelerator, you know, 40 meters beneath their feet. Um, maybe they should be mm-hmm. warned, I suppose. Um, but uh, it was uh, it was a, a job that I took actually out of out of graduate school, um, largely because it was different than any other option that I was going to be presented with. I had I had uh, other offers to stay at Fermi Lab, and for various reasons, I kind of wanted to get out of um, get out of there. You know, I, I didn't necessarily want to move out to the location where Fermi Lab is. Um, sorry, I'm playing with a okay. lens, you see, <laughs> um, that I just dropped on my keyboard. Um, so I, I, I wanted to move to somewhere different, and I didn't want to go to Europe, so I didn't really want to go to CERN. My wife would not have enjoyed that, um, I, I, I don't think, because I would not have wanted to move us both, and I certainly wouldn't want to be separated. Um so uh, Cornell, I, I had an offer from Ohio State to work as a postdoc with them, but stationed at at Cornell, uh, living and working on the Cornell campus. It was a campus environment, which is very, very different than a sort of a strict laboratory environment. I like that idea, getting, you know, staying with uh, the, the, the sort of the college campus vibe. Um and you know, took a position there and and switched over to botanium simply because that's what that, that that was among the things that you could study very easily at the experiment there at Cornell. Um, did four years there and then and then came out to to uh, to Luther to teach here. Um, and I've been working on botanium ever since. Uh, really, I. Uh, you know, continued to collaborate as a once once I got the faculty position here, I had to sort of transfer my status to one of a, a, a principal investigator with the you know with a new group, uh, me and my undergrads here at Luther, um, uh, and I stayed on. You know, we, we we finished all of our analyses of the data taken at Cornell uh, in two thousand nine or thereabouts. Um, and at that point, I switched over to another experiment that uh, that I'm currently working on in Japan. A um, couple of odd coincidences sort of led me in that direction. Um, namely, uh, friends and colleagues from the Cornell experiment who had just joined uh, the experiments Bell and Bell II uh, that, that is performed at a at an accelerator facility in uh, Japan north of Tokyo about an hour and a half um, uh, yeah so I mean that's that's what got me going on that I'm still doing the same kind of studies um, we've discovered a, a few new states new energy levels that hadn't been seen before which is exciting um, in the bottomonium system um, so you know progress I Progress is really slow in particle physics, um, which I guess is kind of funny given that we have to accelerate particles to very high speeds, but uh, progress is very slow. It takes a long time for us to sort of revise the models that, that, uh, that we have for the strong interaction. Um, so, uh, but the, you know, the, the, the glory and the fun is in the pursuit. <laughs> Uh, as they say, and you know what I often tell my students is that um, 
you know, what we're doing is, is, I mean, I, I'm one who I, I absolutely love the aesthetic beauty of a, of a nice mathematically tidy system of, 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 of understandable states in a, you know, like, like the hydrogen atom or like bottomonium. Um, and the fact that we are actually probing this thing, I mean, it just is, is, is thrilling in a way that probably is not so obviously thrilling to many people. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I guess it's like discovering planets around, you know, uh, uh, stars outside the, the, outside the solar system, you know, other, other, other stars, stars other than Saul, I guess, um. Uh, or understanding for you, Dan, you know, ways that uh, particular storm systems develop um, can be exciting. Sure. Yeah, there's a beauty in it, uh, you know, and, and, and for me, I, I, I just enjoy, I enjoy greatly the, um, the sort of teasing out of the details that, uh, that display the beauty that, that is there in this, in this particular system. I'd like to ask a question, actually. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so you're currently, you're still working with, uh, like bottom corks and things, um, yep. and with mm-hmm. the bell, bell experiments. Um, what do you think is the most interesting thing that maybe not that you've not tech- technically discovered, so to speak, like in particle physics speak, but just something, what is the most interesting thing that you've come across? Maybe it's just a hint of something or whatever doing that, working with that experiment. Well, so I mean, really, the 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 most astonishing thing for me was when we, well, I, I, okay, there are there are a couple of things. <laughs> let let me begin though by you know when when I joined the experiment, I, I joined sort of on the heels of of a friend of mine who had joined uh, a few months prior to 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 me joining. Um. And we had an idea that we wanted to pursue um, based on some work we had been involved with at the Cornell experiment um, that, you know, suddenly was going to, that, that was, was related to charmonium. One of the things that we do in, in physics in particular is um, if we have analogous systems, Sometimes the discovery of something in one of the systems can give rise to ideas about pursuing a, a similar analog in the other system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what we did. So um, uh, a colleague of the two of ours, not us directly, although I was involved in the analysis as, a, as an internal referee, um, we discovered a particular uh, way of producing an interesting one of these states in charmonium uh, at Cornell. And when we joined the Bell experiment, we said, hey, this may be the way we can find one of uh, one of these long lost known uh, states that had to exist from a quantum mechanical standpoint, but had yet to be discovered experimentally. Um, 
we thought that this method and uh, was going to perhaps be possible with a large data set that we knew that, that Bell had taken. And so when we joined, we explicitly said, yes, this is what we're going to uh, when you join a new experiment like this, or when you join as a new member, you often have to talk about the kinds of things that you plan to do. So this was on our, you know, number one on our, on our dance card, um, as it were, uh, was to look for this un, as yet unseen state uh, or states. Um, the, the, the way that bottomonium is arranged, uh, there are actually two of these analogous states, uh, analogous to the one that was seen in this odd transition in charmonium. Um, and we said, we're going to go after this. So um, Bell ha has a, a, a deep pedigree that runs back to Clio, the Cornell experiment. Um, and so the software, uh, the analysis software, actually is structured very, very similarly to, to that which we were familiar with from Clio. Um, which was a great help because we could basically pop into the experiment and start analyzing data with a, with, with basically a, as familiar a set of tools as you can imagine. Hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, and we did, uh, you know, and within a few months we had discovered these states. Um, and now as the way that publication goes, you know, it was, cool. it was nine months later. Right. Um, but uh, these were two states that uh, were known to exist, were known to be difficult to produce. Um, and, uh, you know, in the 30 years of, of the existence, or no, not the existence. Of course, the bottomonium was always there. But mm -hmm. uh, the knowledge of this system, um, these had never been produced in, in, in any experiment. And, and so we, you know, within a year of our joining Bell, we had these two uh, states discovered and published, and that was just fabulous. Um, but one of the side notes, and this is, uh, th this is, I think, still more interesting. One of the side notes of this is because we were able to do this quickly, and because, I mean, one, one of the reasons we're able to do it quickly is because it, it's very, the, the transitions to these new states were very readily produced. They were very prevalent. Um, in fact, hundreds of times too frequent for the theoretical understanding that, that, that we had at the time. And that's, the, that's another one of these sort of scientific progress points, you know, uh, hallmarks or tropes, I guess, is, you know, you find something that is unexplainable and you start digging in to try to come up with an explanation. So we started trying to understand why these transitions to these uh, newly discovered states happen so frequently. And in you know the 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 the, um, the quick story is, we found that the transitions that occurred did occurred through some intermediate state which hadn't been seen before. Well, the intermediate state that hadn't been seen before is what we would call manifestly exotic. So I've talked about mesons and baryons, right? Mesons are a quark and an antiquark bound together. Baryons are, uh, are, are three quarks bound together. And essentially, those are the only forms of matter made up of quarks that we knew of at the time. They're not the only ones that the, the, the sort of standard model of particle physics would allow, um, but they're the only ones that had been ever definitively discovered. Well, <laughs> it's impossible for... Uh, well, what we found was was essentially intermediate states in the production chain. So our initial state, 
this is hard to do also without a diagram, but our initial state is produced and it decays by emitting something that's charged, uh, a pion, which is a very light meson. And what we had, what we had discovered was the, the, the states we had discovered in, in what we thought was the emission of two of these pions, a, po a positively charged and a negatively charged pion. And then the third body in that, in that sequence was the, the state that we discovered. Um, but what, we, what it turns out is that this process doesn't go that way. It goes by the emission of a single charged pion plus something else that's very heavy. And then the emission of a second charged pion of opposite kind and resulting then finally in the, in the, in the state in question. Um, the intermediate state needs to be charged. So the intermediate state is either, uh, and, and, and because it's heavy, because it's, uh, it's, it's in this, this bottomonium system, um, it's, a, it's mass is, this, you know, is, is similar to masses of these states that contain two very heavy quarks. This thing must contain two very heavy quarks. Um, but those heavy quarks that it contains are neutral in, in combination. One of them is positively charged, one of them is negatively charged. So what if there's an intermediate state produced that is charged but has these two heavy quarks, which also, uh, which together are neutral, it means there's got to be a, at least a third quark which is charged. Can't be a third quark that's charged because that would make it a that would mean this is a baryon or some other kind of weird state with a quark and an antiquark and another quark, which is not possible. So the next possibility is a four quark state. Ultimately, bottom line is what we've found is um, that in fact this thing is a charged system of four quarks, probably organized into a heavy meson of a bottom quark plus a light quark and another heavy meson of a bottom quark and a light quark, but bound together like a molecule, like a hydrogen molecule, like a hydrogen atom and another hydrogen atom bound together. This is weird stuff. This is really, really weird stuff. Um, Going to have to have some diagrams in the show notes. Or uh, no, I've, I, yeah, I should. <laughs> they're easy. They're easy to show. Um, they're, they're easy I think it'd be kind show. of fun to have that alongside. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I've got it ready-made because I, I talk about this fairly frequently. Excellent. Um, but, you know, it's the weird, you know, so I, I, I went off a little bit about how I love the beauty of the system of states that we've, you know, that we're fleshing out. Um, but what's even more interesting is when the system doesn't work. And when something comes up that, you know, uh, as there's a, a nuclear physicist named I.I. Rabi, who, uh, who once said uh, upon the discovery of something strange like this, well, who ordered that? <laughs> um, you know, that's when you really start to make progress. I mean, now we've got this whole possible system of, mesonic sta of, 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 of molecular states between mesons. That opens up another realm of possible, you know, discovery. Um, that hopefully, in the second iteration of Bell, um, we'll be able to explore some more. So, um, so yeah, th that's part of the future. I mean, that's one of the things that that I'll be engaged with. Um, we start data taking for Bell two in 2018, which sounds like a long way off, but really, it's very. It's it's actually freakishly close. Um, you know what it's like to schedule experiments out you know yeah uh, a few years down the road 
Um, and, you know, we'll be taking data there for, I don't know, 10 years probably. So, you know, 2018 to 2026, 7, 8. It's a long time off. It's too long for me to be able to think about right now. But um, it's nice to at least have that, uh, you know, <clears throat> that future plan um, to be able to engage students for a long time with. Well, um, coming from the future back to the present, uh, well, actually, Actually, going through the present back to the past. Uh, how'd you end up at Luther? Uh, just tell us about uh, how you got your current faculty position. Yeah, so um, this is another one of these great things. So, um, you know, I ended up switching from Clio to Bell um, by a phone call that I didn't expect. Um, and actually a job offer that I didn't expect. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I was actually uh, the the friend of mine uh, who works out at a national laboratory in in the Northwest was uh, angling to get me out there, at, at, at least as I understand in in uh, <laughs> in retrospect. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you know, my my. My coming out to Luther uh, came about because of a friend of uh, of ours. Um, so we went out, my wife and I went out to Ithaca to live there for four years in 1999, spring of 99. And a f several months later, I guess it was, uh, I can't remember whether it was fall of 99 or early spring, probably was fall of 99, um, or right around the turn. Um, a couple from Minnesota uh, moved out to uh, join a research group in chemistry. Um, uh, Brad was a freshly minted PhD from Minnesota in chemistry, and his wife Julie was a teacher. And uh, because we were the young professional couple, um, our pastor at our church in Ithaca uh, sicked us on the new couple. <laughs> As he often did, uh, uh, not not not. I, I say that in jest, of course. Uh, we had them over. Uh, in fact, our pastor arranged it so that uh, we didn't actually even have to make dinner. Uh, dinner was brought over for us, and we were hosting. So uh, we met Brad and Julie that way. Uh, they became good friends of ours. We were uh, in Bible study with them. They were at our church, and we got to know them well. They um, are sort of the, the first friends who met our uh, our oldest child, who was born in Ithaca. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, good family friends from, from basically from the beginning. Uh, Brad took a job in 2001 out here in uh, at Luther. Uh, his wife was a Luther alum, and uh, they were looking to get back to the Midwest. Brad was sort of um, caught between looking for an industry job as a chemist or looking for a teaching job at a, at a similar school to his alma mater, which is Gustavus Adolphus College, which is up in... Um, uh, north of us, uh, a couple hours uh, in Minnesota. Um, and the, he got the job here at Luther in 2001. Spring of 2003 rolls around. I'm looking for jobs. Um, and 
Uh, Brad calls me up out of the blue and said, Luther's hiring. Get your file in. I said, okay. I can't, what am I going to, you know, what have I got to lose? And, uh, you know, came out and interviewed, went back home, had an offer sitting on my desk when I got home. That's how I got here. Um, completely unplanned. I would, you know, I would have probably looked for, uh, well, I was, I mean, I was, I was looking for positions. I was, uh, I had applied for a couple of tenure track jobs in 2003 spring, um, came out for interviews. One was out in Washington state at Whitworth university in Spokane. Um, came up one short there, uh, number two on the short list and, and the, the number one took it. Uh, same thing happened at St. Norbert here in Green uh, Green Bay, close by, and so I, had, you know, relegated myself to looking for visiting jobs, and uh, you know that's when Brad popped in, and the rest is history, I guess, as they say. So unexpected, but uh, definitely blessed. It's a great place, great place to live. Um, not corn and hogs. Uh, as most people think, this part of Iowa looks very different. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, so that's that's how I ended up here. Now, did you uh, uh, did, did you have your eyes set on uh, sort of more of a liberal arts teaching job, or um, uh, was it sort of you know fifty fifty between that and more of a research oriented position? Uh, what were you thinking? Oh. No, so this is yeah. This is another thing. See, when I start to talk, I'm in trouble. <laughs> this is why I'm always pushing up at the end of class, uh, you know, and slightly over. Um, I went, I blew right on by that. Yeah, I, when I left Whitman, I was absolutely set on getting a liberal arts college job because I ab- I loved it. I absolutely loved the the the. The, the type of atmosphere that a, a liberal arts college has in that it is it, it, it's number one it's 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 smaller I mean it's smaller uh, there's more connectivity across disciplines which I, I just loved as a student and that's the kind of atmosphere I wanted as a, a, a as a professor I mean I knew I wanted to teach I, I knew absolutely leaving Whitman that I, that's what I wanted to, to aim for um, I didn't exactly follow the typical path that you would follow for looking for a liberal arts college job, though. I mean, um, you know, doing particle physics research at Fermilab and then going off to Cornell uh, to a, 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 a prominent particle physics experiment there um, is not what most people would do, <laughs> I, I, I suppose. Um, but I found something, you know, I... I, I Within particle physics, I was doing stuff that undergrads can actually get their hands around if they've had even a couple years of physics. Um, the, the study of, of energy levels of quarkonia is something mathematically that's not beyond them, uh, really, at, at, at all. So I had, I had, I had zeroed in on and, and sort of stuck on, partly by chance. Again, I didn't pick my advisor. He picked me. Um, and he didn't start out actually doing quarkonia. He started out as a nuclear physicist and was transitioning when I uh, when I arrived at Northwestern. Um, 
but uh, you know, I had, I had happened upon uh, you know, clearly providentially um, uh, something that I could then take back to a liberal arts campus, and um, you know, I didn't apply for a single R one job. I didn't want that pressure. I didn't want the. I didn't. Uh, you know, all, all, <laughs> obviously, I'm sitting in the presence of someone who is at an R one institution and has the pressures of an R one institution. So, in in Dan, so I yeah, I, just slowly starting to to find out what those are and what yeah, that entails. Yeah. Yes. So I really wanted something where teaching was going to be a you know a substantial and really the principal part of my life. Um, that research would be something that I would actively pursue, but I really wanted to be in the classroom. And in uh, and, and more than just the, you know, once or twice a year that most of my, you know, friends who were going off to R1 jobs were would, would ever be doing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I probably... I find that I do better with the under 22 crowd than the, you know, than the grad student crowd hmm. um, in terms of being an advisor to them in terms of, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I, I thrive on the developmental changes that go on at the college level coming out of high school and going on to, you know, life as a hopefully a little bit more mature adult. Um, or to further schooling, but you know, so I, you know, I knew that my chances of really being engaged with the undergrads at an R one was unlikely, and my certainly my time in the classroom was going to be much much less. Now I've got my own pressures. I mean, you know, I'm teaching a lot more than ninety nine percent of my colleagues, my research colleagues. Mm. Um, so I can't do you know I can't do the stuff that they that they do. I, I can't spend the time on it. Um, but I also don't have to spend the time that they spend on writing grants all the time or mm-hmm. supervising postdocs and, 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 and whatnot. I can actually do analyses. I can actually contribute to software development uh, in a way that I think is, is helpful for the collab- my collaborators and is, you know, is certainly good training for my students. So, yeah, it was never R1 for me. That was not my, that was not my, uh, my idea. <laughs> it made me a little bit of a pariah, you know. I was kind of like the odd duck. Why are you? Why are you even here? Then why didn't you just go get a job? Well, because I wanted a postdoc. Because I think actually that set me up better um, than coming straight out of a PhD. Yeah, it's funny how there's these these expectations that if you take a certain career path that you're going to want to go do this or that, and uh, and yeah. like if, if you're getting a postdoc, well, that must mean you're wanting to get into full blown research position. Well, oh yeah. Yeah, and, yep. and yeah. So. <laughs> yep. So here I sits. Here I sits. And it's summer now, so my students are, you know, busily working. And I've got a trip going, coming up to Japan with them next week. So Life goes on. Life goes on. So That's you... A- so yeah. you do or you don't have any grad students then? You just nope. teach undergrads then? It's only undergrads. It's okay. a, only undergrad institution. Yep. Great. But the uh, National Science Foundation loves to uh, find people who are actively researching in undergrad institutions. Oh, so yeah. It's they've been... Seen a lot more about that lately. Oh, they, yeah. They've, they've been very good. I've had, you know, it's, let's see, 
I guess I got my first, yeah, it's been 10 years. So I got my first grant starting in 06 and mm-hmm. I've, I've been funded ever since. So Great. that's been really, really, really helpful because I can hire students not on the university, you know, on the college dime. It's they're, 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 they're all, they're all paid for and they've, uh, yeah, I think they've they've had some good experiences. So I'm funneling students off to PhD programs everywhere, and that's uh, All right. that's a good thing. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, looking at the uh, looking at the clock, we should uh, probably move in the direction of uh, <laughs> wrapping this up. Uh, so any uh, uh, any last bit that uh, you want to talk about, uh, Todd, before we uh, head out into the sunset? Well, I don't know. I guess I would make more, you know, and uh, uh, comprehensive remarks from all three of us. You know, if anything that we've said in these programs has been you know, has piqued interest or you know has made you ask uh, a question of yourselves, that the uh, I'm speaking to the listener here, um, that uh, you might like us to expound more upon. I, I'm I'm sure we could. If you've got questions that, you know, we've all talked about uh, areas that we've studied um, and are actively engaged in. If there's any area that you're interested in us talking about more, I think we should uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, and uh, so remember uh, if you want to get a hold of us and uh, fulfill Todd's uh, wishes, uh, our email address is bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com You can also leave comments at the the show notes at uh, christianhumanist.org Uh, and find us on Facebook. Uh, So until then, um, The Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filipic. Our intern is Sway Jimenez. Uh, So on behalf of Dan Dawson and Todd Pedler, I am Charles Heckney, thanking you for joining us for another hour or so inquiring into The Book of Nature. Uh, If you liked the episode, give us an email, Facebook comment, or leave a review on iTunes. Uh, and uh, look for us next time when, uh, Todd, we will we'll be uh, leading our discussion. So until then, listeners, I leave you with these words of wisdom from Meatloaf. If life is just a highway, then the soul is just a car. Goodbye, all. <laughs>